Amen. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 16. Luke, the 16th chapter, as we look at God's Word together. And I tell you, it is exciting to be back with you today. I am proud to be here today. Now, it's a little colder than what I'm used to over the last few days, okay? A little more rain, a little colder. Some of you do know that I've been visiting the, the happiest place on earth. And I'm not talking about football schedules, although that's been pretty happy for me lately as well. My family and I were able to get away for a few days and uh, enjoy some things. And I tell you, the last two or three days, I've been trying to recover from that trip, right? See, last Sunday was my four-year-old's birthday. So we were there for Ainsley's birthday. And for some reason before we left, for some reason... My wife told this little child, this four-year-old little child, that this was going to be all about her. (laughs) Why do you even have to say that? I mean, she knew that anyway. She had it all figured out. So the whole trip, it was great. We all enjoyed it. She enjoyed it. But now we've come back and you, you find reality, you know, as you come back home. But we've been trying to recover, and it is great to be able to come back and be with you. I'll tell you, the one thing I missed was being here last Sunday with you all. And uh, I am thankful to see you, my family, and uh, worship with you and praise the Lord with you. Well, I will tell you that it's a little bit difficult to come back and to take take a text like Luke 16 and preach it. Because over the last few days, I've been thinking about all the good things You know, if you're at Disney, they try to uh, remind you of good things, about uh, the great things. And and even their customer service is, well, it's second to none, right? I mean, they take care of you. So everything that we've heard outside of the family life, at least, has been positive over the last few days. So to come back and then all of a sudden pivot to Luke chapter 16 was rather difficult. And yet, I felt as God was leading me and as I was preparing this message, it is so needed today. You know, Jesus spoke tough words. Over the last few weeks, we've talked about some of the tough words that Jesus spoke. Difficult words for us to hear. For the audience that was before Jesus and also the audience of today, for us to hear. And the reason Jesus would speak such difficult and tough words is so that we would respond in faith and so that we would grow closer to him and so that we would be motivated not only to love him, but to encourage others to love him as well. These are some of the most difficult words that come upon Jesus' lips. But I want to share them with you today. Luke chapter 16 will focus on verses 19 through 31. But let me set the context for you. Because there is no meaning of the text without the context. Luke chapter 16. Jesus has been talking, he's been sharing with his disciples about stewardship. He's been talking about a faithful steward. One who is discerning, one who is faithful in all of his dealings. And at the end of that story, Jesus makes this statement in verse 13. He says that no servant can serve two masters. For either he'll hate the one and love the other, or he 
will be loyal to the one and despise the other. He says you cannot serve God and mammon, the resources that you have. That's what Jesus said. Well, in the midst of telling that story, the Pharisees heard Jesus, of course. They were eavesdropping on his teaching to the disciples. And they, they began to deride him. And Jesus looked at them. And he reminded them that the kingdom of God was right before them. They had, they had missed the teaching of John the Baptist. And now they had missed the teaching of the Savior himself. And it's in this context as he speaks back to the Pharisees that he gives us this illustration. Verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came, licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died, was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off. And Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Besides all this, between us and you, there's a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham... But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Some of the most difficult words that Jesus ever spoke. One of the most difficult stories that he ever told. Difficult to hear, difficult to understand in some ways, difficult to accept. But listen to the story and listen to the message that Jesus gives at this point. Jesus tells a story about two individuals. Their life experiences starkly different, totally different, vastly different. It says that there is this one man, this rich man, he says, who enjoys all of the comforts of this life. When you read this in verse 19, you'll notice it says that he's clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously every day. The language that is used here is to point out how this man enjoys what this life has to offer. That he enjoys the comforts and the wealth and the pleasures of daily activity. It says that he was dressed in purple. Now, I have nothing against the color purple, okay? I don't wear it for a reason, but I have nothing against the couple, the color purple. But what is the significance here of this color and saying that this rich man wore this 
purple color daily. Well, purple was a sign of aristocracy, of wealth in the New Testament. What they would have to do in order to have things dyed purple is they would have to go out and they would have to find this snail-like creature. And then they would have to take the shells and they would have to crush them up. And it would take a lot of those. Think about it just a moment. Something that is about the size of a snail, you've got to go out and you've got to get all of those shells and you've got to crush them up. It would be time-consuming. And thus, because of the labor and because of the intensity of finding these snail-like creatures, well, it would cost quite a bit. And when you wore that purple, it was a sign of your economic social standing. So it says that he wore purple. It says that he, had, that he also wore this fine linen. Literally, it is the idea that he wore soft undergarments. I'm going to leave it at that, okay, this morning? But not only what was on the outside, but what was on the inside that he wore was the best. And then it says that he fared sumptuously every day. Every day was like a feast for him. Every day was just this idea of pulling up to the table and enjoying the great banquet of life. So that's the picture that Jesus paints of this person, of this individual, that he is... He is feasting daily. He's wearing the best. He is enjoying what this life can offer. And then he introduces you to another man. A man named Lazarus. A man who finds no comfort in this life. It says that he is laying there at the gate. Literally, literally what this passage says is that he was thrown at the gate. He was thrown down before the gate of the rich man. It says that this man, full of sores, who had been uh, thrown there, was begging. He had nothing. He had no resources. He was dependent upon other people for his very existence. Lazarus. Irony runs all throughout this story. But perhaps there's irony found in the name itself, Lazarus. Lazarus, Eleazar in Hebrew. Lazarus means God is my help. Or God is the one who helps me. Think of the irony of that a moment. When people would pass by and they would see this guy thrown at the gate of the rich man, This guy who was begging, this guy who had nothing, this guy who had sores all over his body, when they found out his name, Lazarus, it must have been somewhat ironic to think that this man, his name itself, reflects that God is my help, and yet there he is, helpless before the rich man's gate. Almost like a mockery that such a man would even suggest that he'd been helped by God. It says that the only comfort or further pain that he received would come from the dogs. Seems like the only ones who really noticed him in this life were the dogs. The dogs would lick his sores, it says. These stark differences... Well, then Jesus 
Then Jesus tells us of their destination, of their final destination. It says in verse 22, And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. Someone has said that death is the great equalizer. It certainly is. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what position you have in this culture. It doesn't matter the joys of life or the sorrows of life. It doesn't matter really who you are. Death itself comes to us all. The Bible says, is appointed unto man once to die, right? And then cometh the judgment. In other words, all of us, if Jesus tarries, if Jesus tarries, and let me say this, I pray he comes every day. Don't you? But if Jesus tarries and God decides to hold back the return of his son, then all of us in this place will experience death one day. Everybody. Now, you see how tough it is to come back from Disney World and talk about this? I mean, I was just told that wishes come true no matter what. And yet, reality is, all of us, all of us will face death one day if Jesus tarries. But this is the, this is the truth. I just want to share just a couple of truths with you today. Our final destination, where we will end up, even through our death, our final destination is either one or two places. Our final destination is either heaven or hell. That's really what Jesus is saying here. That all of us will die. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, one day you're going to come before the God of heaven. And there's only one of two choices, heaven or hell. Now get this picture here. I want to I focus on this beautiful picture because this is a beautiful picture. Sometimes we... We focus just on the tough parts of this story, but, but notice the beautiful picture. It says that when Lazarus dies, the angels carry him to Abraham's bosom. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that an awesome thought that when the child of God dies, the angels themselves carry that child to paradise itself i think that's awesome can you think about it for lazarus lazarus had experienced nothing but sorrow in this world he'd experienced nothing but poverty and nothing but sorrow nothing but those things that had come against him and now at his death at his death the angels usher him before the presence of God. It must have been a great party. It must have been a great party. For this one that had just hoped to eat the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table, now he had set before him a table unlike any other, a banquet table. Now this guy who had who had had all of these sores, all of these physical issues. Now all of those things were removed. 
this man who had been alienated from society, who had had no sense of fellowship with his, his brother or sister, no type of connection to the rest of humanity. Now, this man experienced the fellowship of God himself. How awesome is this? And it reminds us that upon that moment of death, our spirit goes to be with God. Isn't that what Paul said? As he wrote to the Corinthian church, as he said, you know, one of these days, this earthly tent, this earthly tabernacle, it will give way and we will be clothed. We will experience the fulfillment and the completion of what God has for us. My friends, that is the happiest place imaginable. Heaven itself. And it says that this man who had experienced all these difficulties, all these different things, one day he experienced paradise before God. Well, I'm not saying that many of us are in quite the destitute state that Lazarus would be. But all of us know the sorrows this world brings. Everybody in this place. If you haven't experienced sorrow yet, I promise you, you will. Some of you looked at me like, did you just say that? Brother Reggie, did you just say my life is going to experience some difficulties in my life? Yes. All of us will experience sorrow living in this life. But my friends, what the scripture teaches us is that one day, one day, all of these sorrows will be removed. Every sorrow will be removed. Get this, every tear will be wiped away. One day we will be before the presence of God, around the throne of God, and there will be no more sin. There will be no more disease. There will be no more brokenness. There will be no more relational issues that we will face. All those things will pass away. Can somebody say in this place, amen? amen. What a wonderful reality and truth. For the child of God. Our final destination, according to what Jesus says, is either heaven or hell. It says that Lazarus experiences paradise. But then in verse 23, you see the stark reality, the stark difference between Lazarus and the rich man. It says in verse 23, And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. So here's the rich man. He has died. Probably one of the biggest funerals you could ever imagine had been given for him. Great celebration of life. And yet, it says that after he dies, he looks up, being in torment itself. Now, this should remind us and should really speak to us about our doctrine of the afterlife. All of us in this place will live for eternity. 
Did you hear me? Or let me say it this way. Maybe this is a better terminology. All of us will exist for eternity. Everybody in this place. In other words, when we die, we will continue to exist. There is no annihilation. There is no soul sleep, so to speak. There is no, like, just no more being. No, that's not the case. When we die, we will continue to exist. All of us in this room, everybody, every individual. The question is whether we will exist and enjoy the life eternal that Jesus Christ has given us or will we be eternally separated from his love? That is the difference. We will all exist for eternity. That existence is dependent upon our choice in him. I'll say more about that in just a few moments. But notice, it says that this rich man, that he was conscious, he knew what was happening, he recognized individuals, he experienced it, and he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. First truth is, our final destination is either heaven or hell. The second truth is this. Our final destination is dependent upon the choice we make now in this life. Our final destination, where we go, what happens in the afterlife, is dependent upon the choice we make now. Now, did this guy experience hell itself because he was rich? Woo! Y'all had too much Thanksgiving turkey? Sleep? Was he in this place we call hell because he was rich? No! If he, if he had been, we're probably all in trouble. Because understand, all of us in this place, well, all of us in this place have been very, very blessed materially. Now, I know what we do. We all try to use standards and we say, well, we're not as blessed as those. and We're not like rich. We're not. Let me tell you, by the standard of what we see in this world today, most all of us in this place are rich. So it's not being wealthy that sends an individual to hell. Rather, what you see here is a rejection of who Jesus is and his message. Remember, I told you that there is no meaning of a text without its context. You should never just take one verse and try to make it mean something. It always means what the context dictates it means. And in this context, you will remember that Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. And it says of the Pharisees in verse 14 that they were lovers of money. In other words, he was speaking directly to them this story, this illustration. He says to them that here you are, you are caught up in your money, you're caught up in all those things you've rejected. If you read it, you've rejected the message of the kingdom. 
The message of the kingdom is that God was sending a Savior. And He would pay the price for everyone. For all of those who would come into relationship with Him. Notice that the rich man had self-confidence in his, in his eternity. Notice the way he, he addresses Abraham. Father Abraham. Obviously, the rich man was part of this, this family of God, or so he thought. He was part of the nation of Israel. Let's say it that way. He was part of the nation. And he thought by his inclusion in the nation and the way he had been blessed, then he must deserve heaven itself. That's what he thought. And look, in the Jewish mind, get this, in the Jewish mind, if you were wealthy, if you had done so well in your life, then that meant God must love you. Read the rest of the Gospels. Understand the way Jesus has to correct this before his own disciples, this idea that if you have been blessed materially, somehow you have the favor of God upon you. Jesus had to reject that and push that back. Now, God does give us all things. We agree? Every good gift comes from him. So every blessing is from God. We recognize that. But just because we have been materially blessed does not mean we are spiritually favored by God. But this man somehow, in his self-confidence, thought that he was in a relationship with God. And yet he had no concern. He had no thought of anyone else outside of himself in his own kingdom. The way we read this, it's almost like every day you would step over Lazarus. is right there. He would at least glance at him, at least see, and he has never moved to do anything for Lazarus. Why? Because nothing had ever changed in his life. He had rejected the truth. The Pharisees, in this passage, the Pharisees had rejected the kingdom of God. They had rejected the witness of Moses and the prophets, which collectively stand for the Scripture. And now this man was experiencing torment. Again, some people read this and it's so difficult, so difficult, especially in our culture today, that rejects any idea of some type of punishment or judgment for our sins. But may I remind you first, these are the words from Jesus. See, when you go out and you talk to people, they'll say, oh, but God is a loving God. God would never do anything like this. God is a loving God. And all of us in this place, I hopefully would, hopefully. Right? God is a holy God. He is a loving God. We believe that. That he's a loving God. But as I said a moment ago, we forget that God is also a holy God. See, what we do is we take the attribute of love and we define God by it. But we forget that God has other attributes as well. For example, holiness. What does it mean to have a holy God? 
It means that that God is righteous and good and can never affirm anything wrong or unrighteous. That's a pretty good God, isn't it? Say amen again. Those of you up in the gathering, I hope you stay on with this better than this bunch is. God is a loving God, but he's also a holy God. And that means that he is righteous and he cannot affirm anything that's wrong and he cannot affirm sin itself. And hey, that's a good thing. If, If we had a God that affirmed things that were wrong, he would be less than God. And I will tell you that none of us in this place would want to serve that type of God, a God who would affirm things that are wrong. So what does God do? God has to deal with sin. If he is a holy God, he has to deal with sin. And he does it. For those of us, for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ, understand God has dealt with our sin. It's not that we just got off the hook. God dealt with our sin. How did he deal with it? Through Jesus Christ. Everybody in this place, all of us, deserved to die on the cross of Calvary. Every one of us deserves a place called hell. Every one of us. But the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus took the initiative to come to this earth in the incarnation, to live a perfect life, and to die a completely sacrificial death for us. To demonstrate through the resurrection his power. And because of that, listen, listen, listen. Because of that, our sins have been forgiven. The faith and the trust that we've had in him of saying, Jesus, we want you in our lives, we commit ourselves to you. Isn't this what that verse says? For God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. See, so many people today, they, they say there's no idea, there's no way that God could affirm a doctrine of hell. My friends, there's no way he could not if he is the holy God that he says he is. But God, being the loving God, has provided us every opportunity for salvation. Our final destination is dependent upon the choice we make in this life. Notice again, he says, hey... Father Abraham, would you send Lazarus? Notice how Abraham responds. He says, I can't do that. There's a great gulf that is here between the two that allows no one to travel between. If you look at the original language of this passage, it would speak as if there is a great gulf that is there, that is there with a specific purpose of preventing going back and forth. So in other words, after our death, our decision is already made. Our decision for our final destination has to be made 
in this lifetime. It's not something you can put off. It's not something we can say we'll deal with afterwards. Well, then there's this concern. He says, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to the place of this torment. All of a sudden, he's concerned specifically about his five brothers who obviously are living like him. And he says, would you send Lazarus? And this is one of the most incredible statements that I find in all of the New Testament. In all the New Testament, this is one of the most significant and powerful statements. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Moses and the prophets. A moment ago I said that when you take those two terms together collectively, it stands for the Scripture. The Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament. In other words, they have the Scripture. They will hear the Scripture. And, and, and the rich man protests and says, No, Father Abraham, if one goes from them from the dead, they will repent. And he said, No, no, no. If they'll not believe the Scripture, they'll not even believe someone who returns from the dead. You see, this was the Pharisee that he was speaking of. The Pharisee knew all of the Scripture. The Pharisee knew everything about the history of Israel and the promise of the Messiah. knew everything. And Jesus was saying that if they'll not hear and they'll not listen and they'll not allow the Scripture to convict them and to change them, they'll not be changed even if somebody comes back from the dead. spoke to you a moment ago about irony. How ironic is this statement? Later on, in Jesus' ministry and life, he performs one of the greatest miracles outside of his own resurrection. Do you remember this miracle? I know he performed many, but remember the most probably fascinating, powerful, significant ministry or miracle he performed outside of his own life outside of his own resurrection, was the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, it's not the same. I know it's not the same person necessarily he's talking about. Obviously not the same person. But I do think it's ironic that he uses the name Lazarus here. And later on, he will resurrect or resuscitate this man named Lazarus and demonstrate his power. And how will these same Pharisees and leaders respond? One of them, Caiaphas, being high priest said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not the whole nation should perish. Now this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for that nation only, but also that he would gather together in one the children of Israel who were scattered abroad. After the resurrection of Lazarus, the religious leadership wanted to kill Jesus. But they just brought somebody back from the dead. Remember? Oh, if they only somebody would be resurrected. If only somebody would come back, they would believe. No. John chapter 11 says they don't believe. They actually says, we've got to kill him. And in this great statement, Caiaphas, the high priest says, isn't it better for one man to die than for the whole nation? 
And he didn't realize how truthful, how significant those words were. While he meant this temporal death of Jesus would bring back the temporal salvation of the positions and the power of Israel. What he could not have understood was the full meaning of those words that Jesus, through his sacrificial death, through one man's death, not only the nation but all people who would gather to him would be saved. And then, of course, the resurrection of Jesus himself. The resurrection of Jesus himself. Jesus died was resurrected. He was physically resurrected. He was bodily resurrected. Let me tell you, friends, Jesus lives today. There's no doubt. And yet some of the same religious leaders would not believe. This is the message that Jesus gives. Our final destination is dependent upon the choice we make now in this life. It is the choice that God calls us to make as we place our faith and our trust in Christ. All of us have a final destination, every one of us. But there needs to be a choice that we make where we have faith and belief in Christ. And listen, that gives us the opportunity to enjoy paradise itself. I was thinking a moment ago when I was sitting here on the pews in the back as I was watching that video for Lottie Moon. One of the reasons we do missions, one of the primary reasons we do missions is why? Because we believe there is a final destination. Because we believe that it's either heaven or hell. And while we want people to enjoy this world and enjoy this life and, ex and expect the abundant life that God brings now, we want them to know the eternal life that comes through Christ and Christ alone. Why do we do missions? Is take the good news that through their choice and their faith in Jesus Christ, they can be saved. Not just now, but for all of eternity. That's the reason we give. That's the reason we go. That's the reason we're about his mission. Today I pray first that every one of us in this place that has experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that every one of us, that we've made the choice for Christ and to follow him and to experience him for all eternity. Second, I pray that God would motivate us once again to be about the business of evangelism and missions because of the eternal consequences that face us all.